0: (laughs) Hello, Spoonie listeners and watchers. It's me, Richard Horvitz, and I am Zim and Billy. (laughs) That was was crazy. (laughs) I always messed up, Daggett and and Billy. And you are watching Points of Experience.
1: I know people say don't meet your heroes, but uh, I'm so glad I did. Because Richard Horovitz is absolutely one of my heroes in terms of his work as not only a voice actor, but the comedy he brings to every single being he creates uh, that lives inside of him and we get to graciously experience on our television screens or the internet screens. Whatever the internet screens are. Your desktop monitors, your phones. Um Hell of a boss is such an amazing show. Uh, we talk about obviously his desire to to work on the stage, and you know, you know, he thought he'd be on Broadway. We we touch on those things, and and hell of a boss is truly like this beautiful funny musical that exists on youtube and the fact that we have creators making content like this for people to just enjoy for free is amazing there's no gimmicks if you want to support their kickstarters then amazing if you want to buy their merchandise amazing but richard's work as a as the voice director on the show it is it is so phenomenal how good this show is um Obviously, the voice of Invaders Im, Angry Beavers, um, Grim Adventures of Billy and Mandy, Skylanders, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers—the the list goes on, as they usually do with these people who are absolute juggernauts in this industry—and um, I, I, I couldn't have been. Lit up more like a, a Christmas tree when I got to talk with him and uh, we do we do disclaimer here battle the elements uh, the element of internet it is one of the uh, it's not really written on the 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 element ch- chart what is it the periodic table is that where the elements are that, that's not where wind and all that shit is and fire although I guess it kind of is um, yeah but we we go head on into battle and it's a f- Freaking strong drag in that internet Um, so I hope this Winds up being a a cohesive Thing that we can put out, and Uh, Richard is just such a kind Generous person, uh With his experience as a teacher Uh, I I just There was moments where I'm just kinda like (gasps) That's it, that's the gospel Write it down, it must be written Somewhere, in stone, on slab Um One of my favorite episodes by far Bye Far. And watch the Invader Zim movie if you haven't. My gosh, like it is so freaking good. It, it it is by far I, I honestly, it is the best animated movie I've ever seen. It is the best animated movie I've ever seen. It has everything. Go watch it, it's on Netflix. If you have not seen that movie, I will rest my case there. Um, and also review us on Apple's Podcast. Ha <laughs> ha. That was my bad impression of a Zim laugh. But here we go Richard Horowitz on the Points of Experience podcast. Yeah. I, in, internet is one of those crazy things because I was actually recording from a hotel room the other day and the Wi-Fi was god awful. I was doing mm-hmm. a source connect connection. I'm like, there's no way that this is going to sustain, but somehow it did. So maybe there's like, yeah. maybe we were all being sold on a lie that we only need like two megs, well, but they, they keep up trying. To,
0: they're trying to get you to pay the 19.99 for a day at the hotel. Yeah. <laughs> high speed.
1: It's like, gosh, just gonna, can I? Can we all just have the same thing? Can not we just make it easy? It's like airplanes too, where you have to pay for like you you pay more for airplane internet than you do for like the meals that you you get on there. It's like it's like fifty exactly. bucks. It's Two crazy. Meals. Um, so I don't know if you remember the interaction in which I kind of met you. It was, uh, and I won't disclose anything for NDA reasons, yeah, but, uh, yeah. we were, we're working on something and you hopped into the zoom and I was like, Oh gosh, that's, that's Richard. We're yes. Um, I, I remember
0: like, that. I do remember it very clearly. That was a fun session too. So, yes.
1: so I'm excited you know. about
0: that project. I can't wait till. it comes out
1: yes 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 me too so for me when that moment happened because I've been such a fan of yours I mean we'll, we'll get into Thank all you. the stuff that I, I that I've been a fan of yours of but that was a, a just kind of a like a crazy moment to me and I was like oh gosh is he gonna sit here and listen to this and I'm worrying if I have to do a really really good job <laughs> or not <laughs> but no. uh, <laughs> yeah, no, you 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 were so nice and kind. And um, again, Thank if that when that if that comes to life, you know that would be really 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 exciting because that was so much yeah, fun. Yeah, I
0: would be excited about that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I I mean Richard, the, the, this show here, what we like to do is provide like a, a resource for people where they can learn, um, as well as get a kind of a perspective from what you did in your life, how things went for you, and how you found yourself to where you are today. So I'd love to start a little bit at the beginning. Um, I know you started acting from. Um, as you, you know when you were younger but and you grew up yeah. in california can you kind of talk me through the the your 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 youth growing up to that first moment where you're like i'm gonna audition for i believe it was oliver is that what your first thing was wow, you've
0: done your research Paul. Yes, yeah, you got to so, you got it um so i um i grew up in the san fernando valley in van nuys california and in the and as i've said before in the in the san fernando valley uh, we were like an original family. Like people moved here in 1949, which is when our family moved here in just 49, 1950. And uh, the the valley was comprised of two two types of families for the most part. Those in the aerospace industry, because you had uh, Rock and at the west end of the West Valley, and you had Lockheed at the end of the East Valley. And then there was all the uh, studio families, you know, uh, actors and uh, you know, studio workers, and mm. directors, and writers, and all that. And I was an aerospace family kid. My dad worked at Rocketdyne and worked on all the Apollo rockets and the space shuttle before he retired. Um, and uh, so that was what I was. I was just a valley rat. And uh, and so when I was about 10 years old, there was a man by the name of Floyd Huddleston who had written uh, the music for the Aristocats for Disney. And oh, he attended that Yeah, he attended the church that my family grew up in or I grew up in. And, uh, he wrote a, a Christmas show and asked if I would do it. And I was only like 10 at the time. And, uh, my parents said, sure. And I did the play and he liked me so much. He introduced me to his agent and that's how I got my first agent at 10. And suddenly my mom was driving me to commercial auditions and television auditions, uh, on, you know, the other side of the hill, as we used to say, cause we were in the Valley and, um, and so that's how I started and I started out as a hand model. I, I was like in all the toys for like Kenner Toys and uh, different toy brands. They, they did an extreme close-up of the kid playing with the toy. It was my hands. You would see.
1: Like George Costanza. Like
0: George Costanza <laughs> until I got, you know, an iron on him. now, yeah. right? So, um, and then from there, uh, I continued to do a lot of commercials for Freshen Up Bubblegum, Chevy Citation, a bunch of Rustler Steakhouse. And then when I was 13, I got an audition for and um, my first equity production uh, musical. It was called Oliver. And it uh, starred Shani Wallace, who had played Nancy in the 1968 award winning Academy Award-winning musical. Uh, who, she played Nancy. She reprised the role. It was directed by Anna White, who had won the uh, Oscar for choreographing the 1968 musical. And uh, Dick Sean was in it and Stebby K and all these luminaries from the 1940s and 50s and uh that's how and then from there i i you know i continue to do tv mostly tv i did all the sitcoms i did you know different strokes head of the class you can't take it with you rags to riches and a ton of shows then in the 1980s i got my own series called safe at home for ted turner's superstation wtbs and uh and then in the 80s i began my uh role like i did a ton of uh, teen films uh, most yeah. notable was uh, Summer School with Mark Harmon and Kirstie Alley and directed by Carl Reiner and uh, then around 1989 I discovered voiceover and that was like a, a ugly duckling coming home to roost
1: mm-hmm. and
0: that's how I got into voiceover
1: My gosh! I mean, so much to I. I I know that was (laughs) very quickly. So
0: much to uh, so much to unpack.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I would love to even start. Is where, but did you have an inclination as a kid where you were like, I like? Was there a first moment you were like, I want to perform, or was just the fact that somebody came to you and said, "Here's an opportunity." No,
0: I wanted to do it. I, um, you know, I was a kid that was sat in front of a TV set from the time I can remember, and I was obsessed with shows. Uh, My favorite was Get Smart. Um, Gilligan's Island, I Love Lucy, yeah. uh, the Brady Bunch, the Partridge Family—all the things that you know, my my contemporaries and I grew up watching when back in the day when there was only three networks. Uh, and um, I was in love with shows like the Flip Wilson Show and Tom Jones, or my mom called it Tom Jones from England. Uh, and I was obsessed with like performing. I wanted to be a performer and i loved it and i you know i discovered that I, I could make people laugh at a pretty young age and so i i always knew that's what i wanted to do even when i was in college i was at ucla as a theater arts major but i was cast in that tv series so i took a leave from theater arts thinking i would go back but i never did cuz mm-hmm. you know my career just took off at that point
1: was that i mean getting that first opportunity uh, I mean, obviously, the world of on-camera and all that stuff is very different than the world of voiceover. It's a, a completely different beast in some regards, but a lot of the mm-hmm. same principles apply. When you got that first sitcom, did you feel like that was that you had made what everybody assumes like making it is in this industry? Yeah, this, it... uh,
0: you always think you've made it until yeah. <laughs> until the work runs out. I
1: thought
0: I made it <laughs> when I got the series. Because at the same time I got the series, I started doing the film work, and I did, a, I did summer school in a movie called Thrashin' with Josh Brolin, another one called How I Got Into College, with surprisingly enough, though we never met at that time, Tom Kenny ah.
1: was in
0: that same movie. <laughs> um, and I always thought that I made it. I always thought that I would always be working, and it wasn't until the Writers Guild strike in 1989, uh, 88, 89, when my career just, like like my on-camera career just went like took a nosedive Mm. and uh, it was a friend of mine named Michael Cutt who I was doing that series with that said, have you ever thought about, uh, getting into voiceover and I knew nothing about voiceover. It just so happened that my, um, my, uh, my commercial agent, my on-camera commercial agent shared an office with a voiceover, uh, agent at the time named Sandy Schnarr. Uh And, uh, I walked over and said, hey, how do I get into voiceover? And she goes, well, you have to do a a demo reel. And back then it was a reel to reel. It was, you know. Yeah. uh, And I did. And and my first month with her, I I booked three commercials, radio commercials. And I thought, oh, I've got it made now. I can do these all day long. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm set. I don't have to worry about money ever again. And that's the last time I worked that year in voiceover. It took me five years to break into into animation. Five years. Wow.
1: I, I I resonate with that so much because I was living in New York. I was doing just on uh, me. I was doing theater and TV and film and all that stuff. And I'd finally booked a gig doing the promos for Nick Sports. So yeah. I was like, yes, I've made it. I'm going into record multiple times a week. This is going to be easy. Yes. Who said ramen noodles was something you had to live on? And then <laughs> the entire Nick Sports division like closed. They were just not made. Making yeah. stuff right anymore, and I was just kinda like eagerly like, well, you guys are just gonna move me over to like the main Nickelodeon stuff, right? And they're like, Well right. no, yeah. we have that guy already and the group of people. I was like, Oh my gosh, what am I gonna do? Yeah, because so. it's
0: it's a little deceptive uh, in the in the Nick New York world because yeah, you know, even though the headquarters is, is in New York, most of their VO and all their animation for the most part, with the exception of like blues clues at the time and all those were all being done in LA. Yeah. And when Nickelodeon opened up their uh, studio, they had already been doing tons of shows, but just using different, you know, satellite uh, um, animation houses to do it. And it wasn't until they opened the studio, uh, it had to have been around 1996, I'm thinking around there, 96 yeah. is when they opened it. Yeah, I was there for the opening.
1: Wow. They had me and Nick
0: Bakai uh, pretending to record the Angry Beavers for everyone taking a tour of the newly opened
1: studio. <laughs> like, they just put you in the booth and they're like, just act like you're doing With a their scene? Headphones. Or
0: do they? Yeah, yes. it's like, Doug! Beaver! Norbert! You know? <laughs> <It's> just. <laughs> hey but you All know what smoking mirrors
1: yeah but I'm sure those people appreciated I'm sure it was a very fun moment for that and I mean you don't yeah. really you know I, I was you don't really see much of that uh anymore to a degree i mean especially now with the pandemic I mean it's not a lot of people going into studios and there's kind of that uh engagement between the performer and the audiences I mean sometimes you got yeah. people on warner brothers lot you know you see the actors walking yeah. around but yeah very I was much get, so
0: um, it's not that anymore, and especially you're right, since the pandemic, we, I can't remember the last time I was actually in the studio with cast members recording. And yeah. even prior to the pandemic, they're, they're, you know, with the advent of streaming and all, all sorts of outlets to do anime, animation, uh, all of our schedules rarely, you know, lined up at the same time so that we could all come in. Now for Nickelodeon, we, we did we were able, like with our majority of our cast for the episode, for Loud House, we were able to come in and do, like, a a giant uh, uh, radio record, we call it, where we all get to play off each other. So it's like doing a play uh, every week. Um, But since then, we have done Loud House from our studios, and we're all together in our booths. So that works. That's kind of neat. But it's just not the same as being in the sessions together,
1: you know? Yeah, I had the very fortunate opportunity of working in New York and doing, like, prelay as you're talking about where you're recording the characters before the animated or whatever. And yeah. I, I remember even just like you fought, you, you, you forge relationships in the breaks kind of, and that's the, mm-hmm. the element I feel like that's removed is where you're talking with your other actors on yeah. that five, 10 minutes, yeah. 15 minutes. And to me, I, I feel so robbed of that. I, I, I moved to LA right before the yeah. pandemic happened and I was like, yeah.
0: what? what happened? Well, I think the, um, The thing that I don't care for, and I know a lot of my friends love it, I I don't. I don't like um, self-record on-camera stuff. Home mm. home record that's that's just been going on since you know people started having home booths but yeah uh, shooting self records at home on your 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 backdrop with the lighting and all that I don't enjoy it because I'm I'm better in in the moment when I'm yep. in the room with the casting people or the director or the producer I you know that same thing applies to recording with with the radio record of the prelay as you said it you you all you all up your game because you're playing with your friends on the playground you know. Uh, it's like getting to see people in auditions. You used to see your friends that you would be reading with or against, and it was just a great time. Now we're all kind of isolated, and the one thing I don't particularly miss is the traffic driving <laughs> to the sessions. <laughs> but I've gone back to the studio as of late a couple of times, not not for Nick, but for a lot of the video games I'm going in yeah. the studio again.
1: Yeah, that's, that's the other element too, just like in the waiting room. But even in that process, I felt like for me – especially in New York City the traveling and being on the subway and stuff i was in like i was participating in like society and i'm ex- yes. absorbing characters as i go by and i'm seeing things yeah. and that that's the thing for me too where now we're just kind of stuck in our rooms and it's kind of like all right what are you watching on tv what are your neighbors like like mm-hmm. what are what yeah, are we what really been learning watching? from Yeah, yeah. 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 It's it's a very interesting uh, experience. And I kind of actually want to step back and talk about that five year period before you you broke into animation or you had that first opportunity. What do you think either changed or what was what was that opportunity for you where you're like, okay, I finally have broken through this door and it's now I'm able to Um, do this?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, Paul. The answer to answer, I I guess I would have to say I was really naive when it came to voiceover. I, I didn't know anything at all about voiceover. I, you know, I was always an on-camera or stage actor. And um, uh, I didn't realize how many people were doing it or what, how you even break into it or anything like that. And uh, I remember those first three commercials that I got that I was telling you about that were radio spots. And at the time, you made like $175 per spot per cycle. So you made $175 for 13 weeks plus 10% for your agent. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, this is how naive it was. Wow. If I do five of these a day, five (laughs) days a week, I'll be clearing five grand easily (laughs) a week. You know, I can live on that. Yeah. And like I said, that's the last time I worked that, that, um, that, uh, year in voiceover. But when it came to animation, I was just, you know, I wasn't known as an animated actor because I, I didn't have a demo. In fact, but the first animation demo I ever had was after I had like three series under my belt. And I only made one because I thought I needed one, but I didn't at that point, you know. um, But I didn't even, you know, that's how naive I was. But what what finally broke it it open was um, there was a show called The Legend of Prince Valiant or The Adventures of Prince Valiant, something to that effect. It was with Robbie Benson and Rob Paulson was on it. Like everybody and their brother had been on this show because it was one of those ones that everyone made their way to the show at some point. And, um, it was my very first, um, my very first animation thing. And, uh, the director was this director who's since passed away by the name of Stu Rosen and, uh, I'll never forget. Uh, I, I walked in there and there was like Charlie Adler was on a mic and I can't remember who the other ones, but it was like very you know big VO people names that I wasn't even really like, familiar with at the time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I remember they were all like around the microphone standing up. Like they're like, I'm thinking, well, that's weird. Why not you just sit down here on the microphone, right? <laughs> from that day forward, I never sat down again. Cause I got it. Your energy comes from the bottom up and you're playing at the mics, but, what I remember is I did my very first line and I was just like a ship's mate, like ship's mate number two. And my only line was like, we've swapped, aye aye, captain, the decks have been swabbed," or something like that. And I do the first line and I remember everyone laughing. I'm like, oh, I'm good at this, right? I'm really good at this. And Stu Rosen came over the talk back and said, I didn't realize we hired Woody Allen to play a pirate. <laughs> and uh, I was like, I was like, <laughs> I was pretty mortified. I was humiliated, but I remember thinking that day. Okay, now I'm am an I'll show you kind of person. Yeah, and from that day, I made my goal to be an animation person, and that's just where I, you know, in on camera, my voice was often in hindrance. Yeah, they would often say he doesn't uh, he doesn't sound like he looks. Mm-hmm. He doesn't sound like he looks. And so you know, for a long time, I you know I practiced talking like this and taking voice lessons and talking basically like you know Billy's dad. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And I remember it's it was my mom who said to me, you know, you should look at your voice as a as a as a positive, not a negative. And at the same time, my friend Michael Cut said, hey, you should get into animation. And so that's where I went, and just kind of went where, kind of where it took me. Yeah. And, I. But uh, I finally got my 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 job on that show. And then shortly thereafter I was cast in, uh, the angry beavers.
1: Wow. Wow. I, yeah. it's, it's such a, I mean, a very similar kind of scenario for me, obviously. Cause I came from an on camera background and, and I had many moments because I, I mean, I don't want to say how old I am I'll tell you off camera but at the you know for my age
0: <laughs> well, you're probably you're probably old enough to be my son so well, I'll say that <laughs> well,
1: well, well listen listen everyone everyone thinks I'm 18 over 18 so that's where I'd like to yes. keep it uh, yes. so you know I, even when I was in New York a lot of times everyone thought I was like 14 I mean and I'm also very short as well so you know on camera wise you know you're 5 foot 4 and I you know you have a high pitched voice all the time I'm calling Amazon they're saying excuse me ma'am I'm sorry. Sorry man, we don't yes, have this. Yes. I had those similar feelings where I constantly was trying to make my voice sound deeper. I, I always was trying to find shoes that would make me look taller, be something that I wasn't, and then when you yeah. finally find animation or commercials even, you can just be who you are. And it's yeah. it's interesting, compelling, and it's rewarded to a degree.
0: It's funny you talk about commercials because like little known fact I was the green grapes in this, in the Fruit of the Loom commercials for about four three or four years. <laughs> And I remember my friend was the Red Apple. Uh-huh. He, he played Apple. And he was already on it, and they were recasting the Green Grapes. And he told me, he goes, you know, just so you know, you know, um, they're concerned mostly about your voice, so you want to keep it down. So even in commercials, you, you rarely heard me speak on those things because it just is. I always feel like uh, the, the, the woman in uh, Singing in the Rain, you can't talk like that to me you know and it's how i always feel but um but i get that i get that um that thing about ma'am because i get that all the time like when when my kids were little we'd go through like the drive-thru would be like yeah i'd like a uh cheeseburger uh french fries and a a, you know uh you know a coke and, would, and my kids would always say, why are you doing that? And I said, you'll hear in a minute. And they go, would you like to supersize that, ma'am? Uh. And I would say, this is a sir. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You
1: know, so. That's like, I had to say, because like, when you want to be taken serious, I would, whenever I'd have to like complain to customer service, I'd always do the, uh, yeah. And I would yeah. always, and, and especially sounding this way, I'd always say, uh, like if my fiance, I would always be like, yeah, my wife, uh, she told me you know, there's this <laughs> problem going on. Because no one's going to take you serious when you say like my, yeah. Girl, yeah my girlfriend said that uh, the this package didn't arrive and I, I need to figure out why they're like all right kid yeah piss off <laughs> so right. I, exactly. I I I resonate with that so much. And, uh, it was, it, it was very freeing to get into to voiceover and cartoons and animation. Did you, did you watch a lot of cartoons and voiceover or anything like video? Did you play video games or was it just kind of, you no, fell into it? Video in that games time?
0: were like long before my, my generation, but, um, I grew up watching speed racer uh-huh. and I love speed racer. It's one of my all time favorite shows. And, um, I always turned every toy I had into the Mach 5, Uh, but for as far as animation and and, and actors in animation, you know, I knew Mel Blanc, like everyone, you know, Uh, June Foray, I knew the names, but like the, the, everyone, I didn't know them until I worked with them because it was literally just a, another facet that I was unaware of. Like, did you, you know, Starkist, Charlie Tuna was, I knew, you know, yeah. growing did you, up. You did know? you have
1: on-camera actors or did, were there people you aspire to be like or shows that you wanted to be on? Obviously, you were watching sitcoms, you said, but were there, were there actors who you were like, I want to do what that person's doing?
0: Well, the, the joy of my career has been that every, like, for the most part, every actor that I grew up watching on TV, I got to either meet or work with. So, like, I got to play Gilligan to Alan Hill Jr.'s Skipper in my series. Um, Dave Madden, Ruben Kincaid, he and I were on the Munsters Today together. Um, When I was doing Oliver, uh, Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John were rehearsing Xanadu, the roller skating number. So I got to meet um, Gene Kelly. And the irony of that is that Gene Kelly's nephew, Mike Kelly, was the stage manager on Safe at Home, just my series just coincidentally. And he would always have heard of his uncle Gene. Uh. Uh, but David Carradine was a dear friend of mine. Um, I could go on and on a lot of the Brady kids I worked with a lot of the, you know, um, but um, I guess I always was more of a fan of like, like I was always like a huge fan. Um, like the Marx Brothers are like my favorite I loved all the Warner Brothers early stuff I loved James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart I think those were two of my favorite and I, I don't think it's it escaped me that that um, that uh, Jimmy Cagney was only about five foot six but <laughs> everyone thought he was such a tough guy I think I really aspired to that you yes. know because when you're short like like I am like you're you said five four I'm five six Yeah. you know after but now I'm probably five five after shrinking
1: Yeah. You know? I say I'm five but, uh, five, and it says that on my license too. So I'll take that yeah, before so, I can get it.
0: But yeah, <laughs> so I think that if anything, I aspired to be. You know, I was I was one of six kids, and I was the last of six kids. And so my dad was born in 1921, and my mom was born in 1923. So I mean, that's what I was around. I was around, you know, uh, movies, movie, you know, movie stars in the 1940s were their idols. And yeah. music. I grew up with my sister and my sisters. Uh, records, So I grew up with Elvis Presley records and, you know, um, Bill Haley and the Comets records and Herman's Hermits and all those things. So that's still where my taste lies, even though I was like the last of six and the, the, the span and age uh, was my older sister and myself. The bookends are t- is 23 years. Wow. So, uh, yeah, and same parents and my parents were married for 76 years before they passed away.
1: Wow, that's a beautiful marriage right there. My gosh. That's, uh, you know, for... You you talk about all these inspirations and stuff and the things that you're brought up on because I ask because you are one of what I would consider in, in, in these animated series that you've worked on, you know, you talk about the Angry Beavers, we talk about Invader Zim, you know, Billy and Mandy. You are, you have been somebody who I've looked towards and I know many, many other have. I look at you as one of, the, like, the comedic comedic geniuses who work in the animation field. And I truly feel that way. It's been, every every Thank time, you. and I, you know, we'll talk about these in a second, but I, I, I did, did you... In UCLA, or at some point, were you doing improv with friends? I know you eventually went on to have like a sketch group and stuff. Where were you harnessing that comedy bone that you had? Did you do stand up? Where did it come from?
0: I just always had, you know, um, a pretty fast wit, a pretty fast. I think, you know, we talk about. Size and everything. And so I think that I developed a sense of humor very young as a defense mechanism. I wasn't um, as big as, you know, a lot of my friends. And I wasn't as big as a lot of bullies. So you hear a lot of times, like you'll hear Chris Rock and people talking about having to like cut people to the quick with wit or insults and stuff. So that's really... Where I kind of honed my, uh, there's always like an edge to my humor too. It's always yeah. like an edge. There's always like, you know, there's an edge to most comedians. Um, so I just was always drawn to improv. I was always a great improviser, not, not like to brag, but like if you listen to a lot of the Angry Bieber stuff, we improvise up a storm. Billy and Mandy, we improvise up a storm. Uh, a lot of the stuff in Zim, I improvise stuff and certainly Billy and Mandy. Yeah. Billy and Mandy had a lot of improv. Um, but you know, I just was always drawn to comedy. I think, I think my timing was born out of sitcom and I mentioned it before, but Don Adams from get smart was like a hero to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you listen to early, like, uh, on the angry beavers, he's a cross between Don Adams and Lou Costello, which is like, (laughs) you listen to me, Norbert, we just left home. Right. Uh, sorry about that, Norbert. You know, there's a lot of Don Adams in there. Um, but I was I found out that I, I thought to myself, you know, um, Lou Costello sounds very much like Time Daily yeah. from Cagney and Lacey, which sounds just like Nathan Lane. <laughs> yeah. So those three are all the same to me, you
1: know. Well, that's such a, a, a interesting thing. So many actors talk about the idea of mixing either personalities or, or voice prints or, or uh, the inclinations that certain other celebrities have. People with mm. unique, unique, you know, mm. unique qualities, and that's how you can find a character. Even a bad impression is is a is a is a good original character um absolutely when you had that first nickelodeon kind of you know with angry beavers were you cognizant and recognizing these type of things to do that or like how much of it was written on the page how much was it like in the callbacks you finding that moment like what was it from first audition to you being in the recording studio you know doing the job
0: um that's a good question paul um (laughs) I knew that I like to play and play pretend fully, which is the, the complete definition of our job: is to play pretend and play pretend fully. Uh, most of us, um, most of us spend more time auditioning than we do getting to do what it is we say we do. So it feels like our job most of the time is to book the job. That's what we prepare for. But I don't prepare that way. I prepare just based on the story, and my barometer is always: that I have fun? Mm. I know I'm not going to book everything, but if I'm having fun, I know you're having fun. And you know, I'm a true improviser. Meaning, uh, there's people that say they improvise, but really they're just rewriting on their audition. Mm. Oh, I'm going to say this here. I'm going to say this here. I don't. It's it just comes out of um, it just comes out of the of the moment that I'm playing in. So I approached yeah you know, I approached animation the same way I approached you know, stage, because that's truly my, my real passion is stage. It still is. Um, I always thought I would, you know, um, I'd be on Broadway one day because that was always my aspiration. The funny thing is, is that I'm now doing a show um, called um, uh, Hell of a Boss where um, there's, like, it's all Broadway stars and I get to sing on the show. And there's yeah. another, sh- I'm, I'm, I'm also voice directing that and I'm voice directing another one. Uh, for, for Vivian, uh, for Vivzy Pop called Hasman Hotel, where there's lots of music and lots of very big uh, Broadway stars and I get to sing with them. So I kind of got what I wanted. I kind of yeah. got what I wanted. Um, but uh, yeah, so from that moment, from the audition process, The Angry Beavers was an interesting one. I went in there and played the way I would play on any kind of opportunity, you know, on camera or otherwise. Um, and then I I didn't realize that when I came in, I would be replacing uh, another actor that they had already recorded. So mm. when I went in there, I actually dubbed over the original actor. Um, and then I didn't hear anything. And then a year later, my agent says, oh, I have an audition for you for The Angry Beavers. I said, but I, I was already that kid. So this went on for like three years. That's the thing about... Wow animation is that i call it planting seeds and seeds and you know harvesting two years later because that's usually a long takes um so i found out as i went through the the audition process all over again is that they were always going to keep me they just didn't want it they didn't want the other norbert that they had to feel bad that they were only replacing him
1: so um
0: so that's that's how i ended up working with nick mckay
1: Wow! Wow! Fascinating, and this is kind of a a, a good segue for us. I mean, you talk about coming in and replacing another character. I I, obviously, you know, with Zim, you kind of had a very similar uh, situation going on, where you, from what I have learned, it's uh, Mark Hamill was originating in that role, and then you know you moved to Billy West, and then comes you. That whole idea of when when that opportunity is presented to you, do you find that like, oh my gosh, I have Th- these shoes to fill and then it's compounded again no, and- because
0: because this is a and this is like a like an often misunderstood story because i this is I, i've told this story many times but i'll tell it again
1: i'm complaining to wikipedia that's it
0: no, well that's the problem <laughs> the, the, pro- the problem th- there's no problem the issue is this jonan wanted me as invader Zim, so originally they had gone to mark Hamill and um and Mark uh, was already doing the Joker and it was very big with Jonan that he didn't want voices that people put on voices. Yes. And so Jonan met me and he knew me from my work in Power Rangers. And he said, I want you to read for Zim. I want you to read for Invader Zim for the show. And when I went in, I thought I was was more right for Dib because I thought that's what I was going to read for for the Dib part. Yeah. I was like, no, I want you for Zim. So I did my Zim and he was like, yeah, that's it. I want you for Zim. This was before Billy and this was before, um, well, maybe Mark had been considered, but it was definitely in the early stages I was J- Jonan's choice. But the executive producer at the time knew that I was already doing Angry Beavers and they didn't want me on this another show at the same time I was doing this show. Ah. And, um, and so, they, so she passed on me and Jonan had to go along with it. But... Then Angry Beavers ended just before they had delivered the pilot. And Jonah goes, wait a minute, you're not doing Angry Beavers now. You can, do, you can do Zim. Come into the booth. And literally that day I went to the booth and I dubbed over like 70% of Billy's thing, his voice. But here's the iron. This is like the, this is the part that no one realizes. They always like, even Nickelodeon will advertise the never before air pilot of Invader Zim starring Billy West. But if you listen to it, it'll start out my voice and finish Billy's voice, or Billy will start yes. it. It'll finish me. It'll be my laugh or his laugh. And at other times, it's both of us at I, the same time.
1: I, remember I don't listening get credit.
0: To that. Yeah, I don't get credit because I dubbed it, and I just mm. dubbed it at that moment. So,
1: but that's what they delivered.
0: That's what they delivered in New York, and they said, "Okay, hire Richard," and that's how I became them.
1: Well, I'm very glad to have gotten that correction because it's it's very fascinating to hear this stuff because it happens all the time in different capacities and obviously the information that's on the internet is... 90% of the time just fabricated or false so I'm glad at least yeah. here for, yeah, for people I, I, to I, I
0: found the internet to be true in every respect
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah right it's it's, it's true yeah. about all the wrong things which is exactly yes. what you know it is but you know so that's Jeez. it's very interesting and this is you know Zim for me this is where I truly yes. felt I mean obviously I grew up you know I, I grew up in the 90s and all of those yeah. cartoons every single one I consumed everything from Cartoon Network yeah. to Nickelodeon Hey Arnold The Rugrats uh Angry Beavers, Spongebob, Invader Zim, uh, Ren and Snippy, Wild Rocket Thornberries, Power, Cat yeah. Dog. Yes. Obviously, Rocket Power had a huge influence on me. But those were the shows that I was cons- like watching every day. I was a latchkey kid yeah. sitting in front of the TV. Well, and that's, that's the what thing that was, was amazing TV.
0: about Nickelodeon. No matter how good the show was, they just played it over and over again until it became uh, so ingrained in your memory that yeah. you just started watching it. And that's what we just watched it like over and over again, you know?
1: Which was so fascinating about Zim too Because I didn't realize it was only one season Right? It was only one season Season and a half,
0: 26 yeah. episodes yeah. yeah,
1: so that to um, me because I watched so much of it And I, I that's where I truly fell in love with you And this idea because I was <laughs> I was a kid that was like Zim I had a penchant for being obnoxious And kind of <laughs> trying to like just have fun at every moment And I was just <laughs> it, it was so different than anything else too Because it was edgy and almost kind of dark but not overly done it didn't talk down to people it found the true humor and comedy it was such a brilliant show it was almost ahead of its time in a way it It was was
0: exceptionally ahead of its its time and i'm you know it's funny i have a friend um dean cameron who played uh chainsaw in the movie summer school with me and, and it's like most of my work is considered cult classic Cult Hmm. classic. But the joke is, cult classic is just another, is a euphemism for commercially unsuccessful. (laughs) Because Invader Zim, just, it was, it was not on the right network. That's what it was. It just, it was not for the demographic that Nickelodeon was going for. I don't know what they expected when they hired a a creator who was famous for um, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, Squee, and I Feel Sick. But, um, But it was dark, you know, Dark Harvest is a, is a scary episode where Mm -hmm. where Zip is collecting organs and they, they do that thing on the roof where the tiles go, it's scary. And it would scare a young kid, you know? Um, but that said, it is the show that is the ugly step stepchild of Nickelodeon that no matter how far they tried to, you know, bury it. Um, it's still, it, it, it succeeded in, um, on its own and um, I think that's a testament to Jonan who really had a vision and it, it was his vision I mean he really is the commander of that it's we, we all it's everything everything in that is Jonan yes we bring things to it and Jonan will tell you that um, he and I are a great collaborator we're collaborators because I'm not what he had, he had thought of when he thought of Zim but what I brought to it he goes oh yeah I like that, yeah. and that's how that came to be, which is, is a credit to Jonan that he's not so married to his vision that he doesn't take in other people's... I've been very fortunate with creators that, that know that I like to improvise and add to it. Um, Angry Beavers is a perfect example of something that was ahead of its time because we were the first show where we were actually allowed to overlap each other as yeah. the other one was doing their lines because Mitch Shower said, I want this to feel like brothers... Fighting, and that's how brothers fight. They interrupt each other, and that's what Angry Beavers was, and that was ahead of its time, also. Although Angry Beavers, that people don't realize, we we did a hundred and three episodes of of uh, Angry Beavers. I mean, we were on a long time, so uh, it just kind of disappeared. Though it just like it disappeared. It's not aired anymore, except for maybe on uh, Paramount. Uh, I think Zim is also on Paramount. It used yeah. to be on Hulu. I'm not sure where, but it's it's not like. We don't get the love that a lot of the other 90s shows seem to get, especially Angry Beavers.
1: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I loved Angry Beavers so much. And again, it's like they, you, yeah. it's so hard for you to, because they replayed things so much back then. You just felt like you were constantly in that loop. And, and now, yeah. and again, it's like, it's it, things almost ahead of, you know, ahead of their time at that point where Nickelodeon, I feel like they didn't really know what the, the vision for that studio or for the network yeah. was going to be. And then you, you, they wound up with these shows, even like Ah Real Monster. Monsters, like you know, these shows that were like, you're yeah. like, wait a second. I mean, and Ren and Stimpy, things like that. Yeah,
0: Ren and Stimpy are real monsters. Um, well, I love Doug when they finally got Doug over there. Yes. Doug, I think was originally Disney, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Was I believe it? so. Yeah,
0: I think it was. Yeah, um, but also um, Rocco's Modern Life. It's yep. another great show. Great show. I mean, that's where I came up. I remember we were invited to a lunch. Uh, that Nickelodeon threw with Nickelodeon's new voiceover stars. And it was a lunch with me and Tom Kenny and Carlos Alas Rocky. And uh, it was, you know, we were interviewed. It was like a press junket. And I thought to myself, wow, here we are, you know, 35 years later, we're still going at it there wow. and still doing our thing. So it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun. You know, the thing about a career is that you don't know what you're doing as, as time goes on, Mm -hmm. you really just keep, keep on keeping on. And then suddenly you become, you know, icon, you know, (laughs) voiceover legend, voiceover icon, but you don't plan, you don't set out to be iconic. Yeah. You don't set out to be legend. You just set out to survive and not go, you know, not go the way of a lot of actors. Right. Yeah. But it's like one of my favorite lines is uh, in, um, Uh, No way home. I think it was a documentary with uh, uh, with Bob Dylan, and they 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 just they cut to Bob Dylan and just staring at the camera, blinking, and he goes, "I didn't set out to be no voice of a generation. I just wrote and sang songs." And I get that. I don't think he did. I don't think there was that kind of forethought. You know, you're just. You know, I'm very lucky that it like I was like I feel like I was the peak of my creativity in uh, in the 90s and early 2000s with, with um, like the, the teams that I was teamed up with, with the crew and the cast and the writers of Zim and Billy and Mandy and Angry Beavers, we were all just having fun and playing. And, you know, you're in a dark booth. You don't know how it's reaching out to the world. You know, you don't know how who's seeing it and what it means to people. And that's why I love conventions. That's why I go to conventions a lot because you get to actually see and meet the people who who were inspired by your work. And that's always really touching.
1: Well, I also have to say too, at that time when th- there was only so many networks back then. You know, right now we have like there's a billion streamers. There's so much content. Way too many being made.
0: Way too much content. And that way too much content.
1: So that's t- it has two effects, I believe. Number one, it I believe it made probably what you were going through coming into the industry at that time way more competitive because there was you know such so far fewer opportunities. But also as a result of that, I feel like there was almost like a, an ability for those things to be nurtured and to like, okay, we care about what we're making right now. Let's make it good and let's spend time on things, whether that's rehearsals or budgets. Right now, I feel like with a lot of things, there's so much and there's like such a race to like having the most content or like making things, sure things get out on time. A lot of corners get cut.
0: Well. Yeah, well, everything is a streaming service now. Everything's a streaming service. Like Peacock is NBC's and Comedy Central. Everyone has streaming for their content. And I think that, to be honest with you, not to sound like the, the old curmudgeon or the old guy on the block, I think that the, the inundation of so much um, stimulation is what has, has contributed to dividing the country as a whole not on a political sense necessarily, but yes, on a political sense. <laughs> but um, but, like when I was growing up, there were three networks and we knew that we were all watching the same shows at the same time. Yeah. So when they talk about the golden age of television, it was a collective experience. But now someone is like, well, wait a minute. I'll give you another example. Growing up, We grew up with the Brady kids. Mm -hmm. We couldn't wait till next season to see how they had changed and how the show had changed. But now you binge an entire season in a sitting, like Cobra Kai. I love it. I I binge the whole thing in one sitting. Mm -hmm. Um, But now you don't have that same collective experience as growing up with them. And I don't think that the kids growing up today are going to have the same, like they won't even remember. Like I can't even remember what shows I've watched with the streamings. Yeah. Also, it drives me nuts. Like if you work for like, um, I did a Netflix series. I did Skylanders Academy for Netflix and, uh, you basically only get three seasons. And the reason why you get three seasons in a show will go on beyond that. If you're lucky, the reason you only get three seasons is is because they discovered that if a person hasn't watched your show and they're going to binge it to catch up, they will not do more than three seasons. If I have to binge more than three seasons, I'm not going to watch your show. Mm. So that's why. Um, and I just think there's just way too much. Another other thing is, is that like Netflix in particular, they won't advertise your show individually. Yep. They won't advertise it. They'll advertise their network and put pictures of your shows on it, but that it's up to you to promote your own show. Mm. And so hence, you know, now we're in the social media uh, cycle. And that's why influencers are getting, you know, parts on, you know, Ozark. Yeah. <clears throat> or they're getting parts on, you know, Better Call Saul because they're influencers yeah. and they have, you know, you know, thirteen million followers or something like that. Mm. That said, I'm very fortunate because I spoke about um, Vivian Madrano, who's Vivzy Pop, and Vivzy Pop on YouTube has a huge following. She has over twelve million subscribers. But she did it all herself. She formed her own company. She formed her own animation studio. She wrote and directed and animated with her own crew that she hired and paid for. And so now we get 70 million views on YouTube for hell of a blast. Yeah. We put out our, our, our new episode on Saturday for the se- for season yeah. two. In two days, it had 6.7 million views. Wow. Network. Network and, and cable aren't getting that kind of
1: viewership, mm-hmm.
0: um, And I've been lucky because I've benefited from the fact that people like Vivian Madrano grew up watching my shows and were fans of Billy and Mandy and Invader Zim. Yeah. And so now I'm like the old guy. That they can't wait to work with, and it's been one of the the best things, kind of being brought into the into the influencer yeah. world, and the social media stuff. And uh, I don't have the patience to be posting something every single day. <laughs> I just don't.
1: Is that do I see a, is it, do I see a moxie behind you? Is that what I'm seeing in the corner over there? You do. You see a
0: moxie. You see a zim. You see a billy.
1: Oh, amazing! I think you see that. <laughs> you got the whole crew there. Yes, I mean there's Squirrel Boy too. Squirrel Boy's an oft-forgotten
0: show that I did.
1: Uh, Oh no,
0: heck yes! I mean, yeah.
1: uh, I I wanted to to jump back in too quickly uh, because you were talking about, um, you know, hell of a boss. It's I, I I truly feel like you, you know, having come from that part where you're talking about the golden age of television, but then to kind of be transported into this, truly what is becoming, I think, the golden age of, of video content today yeah. which is youtube where you're able to take control again where you know traditionally the powers would be to towards these networks but we're seeing kind of like for one of the only great pieces of content that's made in such a unique way and produced to the same quality that these network shows are but it's on youtube yeah. and it's all yeah. for the creators and it's amazing um
0: There's a lot of crowdfunding that goes on that's amazing. Um, Vivian sells a lot of um, merchandise on shark robots. So you can sell pins and hoodies and all sorts of things. So she's got it all covered. She's got merchandising and creative control. Um, but, yeah, what I was saying was that I'm fortunate that people like Vivian Madrano uh, grew up watching my shows and wanted to work with me. And so, um now I'm go, you, know, you know, forging the new frontier of YouTube and social media, et cetera.
1: That's what I'm most excited about, I think, more so than, like, what we were saying. I mean, the streamers are great. There's great opportunities for people like me to, you know, when I'm making my way now. But I feel like, you know, it's more of a game of, of darts rather than uh, a game where, you f- or, uh, where you, you're you you excited by the people surrounding a project. You feel like everybody is invested the same way, and it's not people have yeah. one foot in and one foot out.
0: Right, um, right.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's one of – I I think you just said the, the second – the first – Episode of the second season just dropped a few days ago, so I gotta yeah. check that out. I, I was one it's of the really good, it's really good. I'm excited it's, to uh... watch it
0: yeah uh we get a lot of backstory right off the bat in the in the first episode of season two which is really worth it because the show the writers have grown the animators have grown the actors have grown i mean it's you know you really we you know we really kind of were finding it in the first season and Mm. some of those episodes were just amazing especially the music and the singing and the songs which is my favorite part of it and like i said um vivian uh asked me to voice direct. So I love that aspect of it. Voice directing is a, is a, I really enjoy voice directing a lot.
1: So voice directing, this also kind of goes in part with the fact that you, you, I, I was a big fan of Crispin Freeman's, obviously I, you know, you had taught him and I listened to your podcast with him when I was getting started in this industry. And a lot of what I learned was information that you were imparting in one way or another, either through him, kind of yes. like the, passing yes. through the the chain. That's
0: really funny because I coached Crispin, and if you heard the podcast um, that we did, which was like a like I think it was like a three part episode, yeah, um, was because I was coaching people. And they would come and I would say something and go, oh, that's what Crispin says. Crispin says that exact same thing. So I called up Crispin and go, hey, you know, you are telling them that I taught you that, right? He's like, yes, yes. Yeah. And then that's how I ended up doing the,
1: the podcast. One of my favorite things that you, you guys talked about in that episode, I think was, you know, and it's something we forget so often, like who the heck are you talking to? You know, and it's like when you you say – a lot of people are writing their own dialogue there or, you know, they're not improv they're writing their own dialogue. These simple things that we forget, these nuggets of wisdom where, you you know, it's as simple as who is the person in the scene that you're talking to? Even if it's a commercial, you know, you can't just talk to the, you know, the ether, it's,
0: Especially in commercials because it's never our job to sell in a commercial. Even if it the only the only time it's really our job to sell is if it's a salesperson. And most of the time the salesperson is usually the foil of the story and they're kind of comical. And so even they're not really trying to sell. But you know, you always get the same direction in these commercials looking for real natural conversational no announcers right no loud announcers and people ask me all the time how do you do that how do i do this real natural conversational and i'll say i don't know but before you ask me that question did you think to yourself how do i make this question sound conversational the answer of course is no and so well then it begs the question in order to sound conversational i have to know with whom i'm having a conversation
1: with conversation yeah yeah, and there it is. That's, and that, that, that stuck with me for a very, very long time. It's one of those things where even when you know it, you got to constantly remind yourself. Um, yeah. It's easy to, to forget that easy piece of information.
0: Well, think, think about this. Um, if we're other oriented in the way we go about our work, meaning trying to please uh, what I refer to as the theys, meaning the producers, the directors, to act the breakdown, first of all, it's presumptuous in our part to think that we are giving them what what they are looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means if you're familiar with SAG statistics, which means that a working actor only books 2 to 3% of everything that they read for, and that's batting really high averages if you're booking 2 to 3%. But that means that if you're other-oriented with the way you approach your aud- auditions, that means that you're going into that booth by yourself with with your copy in the dark and your pro tools open and your one little light trying to impress people that you are never going to see hear meet or know 97 to 98 percent of the time Mm -hmm. that's no way to have an art form or a life of art to me
1: i i absolutely concur and agree and i think you know back to what i was saying where i think when there was less studios and stuff, it was a lot, it, it was competitive, but now there's just so much noise. So I think regardless if you are extremely talented, you have to find a way to cut through all the noise and be kind of exceptional in being who you are. And you can only really achieve that by being yourself and offering what is unique to you to the table because everybody else has done everything already. I feel like you got to well, well,
0: the way I look at it is this, if, if I'll show you something. If you told a little kid that this stone was a birthday cake, the first thing a little kid would say is, can it be my birthday? Can we sing happy birthday to me? What flavor is it? How many candles? And an adult goes, hmm, okay, what can I do? What kind of training can I use to convey that I believe that this rock is a birthday cake? That's what we lose from childhood to adulthood. Mm. That's what we lose.
1: It's this, and we've heard it so many times here on this podcast, and you said it right as we started, the the element of play, that kind of uh, yeah. the, the filter that gets ingrained in us, this idea of these social perceptions and having to present yourself a certain way to somebody. Well,
0: I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that our the total definition of our job as an actor is to play pretend and play pretend fully. That's the total definition of our job. Yet, if you have this middle-class mentality... It's very hard for an actor to own that they are an actor if they cannot point to something that they have been in, something Mm -hmm. that they are currently working on, or something they've been paid to do. Why? Because of the family holidays. Weird Uncle Bob comes up to you and says, so, Paul, what are you doing these days to to support yourself? Paul says, well, I'm I'm, I'm an actor, Weird Uncle Bob. You're an actor. What does that mean? You just screw around all day? I know. What are you doing to make money? Mm -hmm. Now, if you you imagine if you had said to Weird Uncle Bob, oh, my job, Weird Uncle Bob, my job is to play pretend and play pretend fully. Uncle Bob would say like, what? Hey, Sue, your nephew plays pretend fully for a living. He must be hanging around with too many of them West Coast snowflake liberals again. (laughs) And yet... If you heard Meryl Streep in an interview and the interviewer said, so Meryl, what is your job? And Meryl said, oh, my job, my job, my job is to play pretend and play pretend fully. We'd all go, oh, my God, yes, she's a god. It would become a meme. It would be on our coffee cups and our T-shirts and our vision boards and our desktops. And yet you can't point to one time. From the time Meryl Streep went into Yale to the time she got out, from Kramer versus Kramer to Sophie's Choice of the Devil Wears Prada, that she was not just going from story to story playing pretend. You don't Mm. see her in scandal rags. You don't see her in all the magazines and stuff. And yet, we place the people that play pretend on pedestals. Mm. And that's that's what I like to aspire to.
1: Wow. It's, uh, gosh, that disparity between when valuing yourself as an actor and believing in yourself and what you do and having the confidence to just, and that's kind of like the mental gymnastics you have to kind of overcome to... To even just do the job because yeah. the more you worry about. It. And I've had so many of those conversations with my grandma where I she said, Well, why don't you get on this show? I like this show. I'm I don't know. Let me just call up Dick Wolf and say, yeah, Hey, right. Dick, I'm well, right. you know, I'm waiting for my shot. My grandma said, Why aren't I on law, you know, whatever it might be. Um y- y- what what do you believe is the thing that actors, humans, anybody can do to overcome this obstacle that many of us are faced with what is the what is it's the remedy What is the
0: solution it's very simple you make the story more important than yourself your job is not to drive the vehicle your job is to let the vehicle drive you you're merely mm. a vessel through which the words pass but the words must be informed you must know why you're saying what you're saying and you must be thinking as the person in the story but so much of us make ourselves more important than our stories but if you're, if you're constantly asking questions about your story and trying to find the answers, there's no room for the self-director to get in the head and start judging you and trying to direct your, you as you're playing. As um, my mentor, Diana Castle, who I, I recommend everyone to, uh, said to me one time, you know, the concerns you have in your secondary reality... Far outweigh the concerns of your primary reality. In your secondary reality, you can be a spy. You can be a ruler of worlds. You can be a god. You could be an international man of mystery. You can be an alien. In your primary reality, you're worried about not tripping on this word, doing a good job, being liked. It doesn't even compare. And so yeah. the answer to your question is you got to make your story more important than yourself. And that's what I pay homage to, the story Ooh. constantly.
1: Gosh. Uh, I mean, the mic drops right there, kind of. <laughs> I don't know if I have to make another comment regarding that. It's just kind of like I'm ready to – that's what it is. Um, I won't I won't ruin it by by talking with my nonsense. So um, <laughs> very, very well said and thank you. And it's yes. very important for our listeners yeah. to hear because now more than ever, especially considering we're in this world of social media, it is perceived as the opposite. The person is more important than the story. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, uh, the image of the, the person is selling the story. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very reassuring and comforting and we need to hear more voices reminding us that the story is what yeah. is important. So, yeah. um, yeah. Uh, I want to make sure I round things out here and then we we, we won't keep you forever here, but I I definitely would love to talk about, you know, especially someone who's worked on so many things um, in animation, video games, um, just like with Invader Zim, Psychonauts, you know, these (laughs) things that you've worked on to see these things come back. What has that experience been like to get the email or the phone call? Have there always been whispers? Have you been anticipating or hoping that these things would come back what is that whole experience working on something and then you know sometimes a decade later being like hey remember that thing you worked on we want to see it again
0: um i always kind of knew that invader zim would come back in one fashion or another i still hold out the same hope for um angry beavers to be honest with you because i i could see that happening um but uh invader zim it was it never surprised me it was always a matter of when jonan wanted to do it again because he had many offers Mm-hmm. Um, it's more heartbreaking to me that it finally comes back and we, uh, we bust our butts on it. And then it, you know, it goes to Netflix, it airs and it, Enter the Florpus was a brilliant movie. And that's it. You know, nothing comes of it. That's what it really is sad to me. Yeah. Uh, but Psychonauts, of oh, Psychonauts. <laughs> Psychonauts, I'm a fan yes, of Psychonauts yes, yes. and, and Tim Schafer is brilliant
1: one last question here. We'll get to our yes. audience question. We'll get you out of here. So um, right. um, what about like, is there a project that you've worked on that's, you know, obviously we have these juggernauts that are, people know you for. Is there something that you're really proud of that people, you know, like we we're talking about Zim that they, you know, they don't see these things. What is the thing that they, that isn't brought up all the time that you're like, I was really proud of that.
0: That the uh, one that's not brought up that I was really proud of. Yeah. I yeah. love Squirrel Boy. Squirrel Boy was a good show. Uh that didn't last long. I was proud of that one. Um let's see. Um I think that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I'm just so proud of that one. That one didn't go very far, but I really like that one. I like the cast and the crew and yeah. And the creator Everett Peck, who created Duckman, uh, just passed away last week. So oh, my gosh. I was pretty proud of that one. So that's kind of prevalent on my mind right now.
1: All right. Well, we got to get people. We're going to link that in the in the show notes. Yes, uh, Squirrel Boy. Um, Squirrel Boy. Yeah. And what about, so a, a, a question we ask a lot of our guests here, obviously we, you know, we've already learned so much through your life experiences and you're a wonderful teacher. Um, aside from what we've talked about already, is there a experience you've had in your life that kind of had an impact on you, whether it was from another teacher or it was through your own life experiences, something, you know, maybe being a father, something that really left an impact on you that uh, yeah, I think you would love to pass that information on? Yeah, I think
0: I think being a father is very impactful um, because you suddenly realize you're living for more than yourself at that point. You know, you've got, mm. you know, these kids that are counting on you. So that was definitely impactful. In fact, I worked, uh, I was very good friends with a man named Louis Arquette, who was the father of all the Arquette kids. You know, David Arquette and David uh,
1: Arquette, yeah, Patricia. and uh,
0: Patricia Arquette and Roseanne Arquette. And he was a dear friend of mine. And, and when my wife was pregnant with our first child, uh, Louis Arquette, their father, came up to me and said, Richard, I hear, I hear your wife is with child. I said, yes. And I'm really nervous. And Louis said to me, Richard, I'm going to tell you, I had a lot of kids. I said, yes, I know, Louis. And he said, and I found that with each one of them, with each boy child I had, my career had an amazing boost. And with, that, and with each girl child I had, with, that, and with each female child I had, uh, I had such growth in spirituality that it was amazing. It was a beautiful marriage. And true enough, with each child I had, I ended up having three boys, but with each each male child, I got another show. And then I got another show with my next one, another one. So <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I think I believed it enough to make it happen, you know.
1: Well, if it ever dries up, now you just know you got to have another kid. That's got to be right, the right exactly out. For me, <laughs> but um, I will
0: say this. My mentor, Diana Castle, which is my acting teacher, she changed my life in the way I approach things and the way I look at, at the world. It, not just my career, but the world in general by what she mm-hmm. taught me. So Diana Castle, she teaches something called theimaginedlife.com, and so I always promote her because she was very instrumental in my in Absolutely. my evolution.
1: Hmm. I mean, you. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for for being on here and just sharing everything thank that you. you have with us. I uh, I've been a big, big fan, and I think you're one of thank the best you. teachers out there in the business, making some of the best actors out there. Oh, Your voice you. direction is is unparalleled, in what you're doing right now thank on hell uh, uh, hell of a boss it is one of the most inspiring shows i've seen and Thank uh, you. like you said it no it this is all truthful and uh, even with zim uh, just to go back to there the things that you were doing i mean even just seeing where the pilot was and then to see everything that came after to see the choices everything from like the laugh to like moments where like it it felt like shakespearean almost and to see yes. like the, 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 yeah the twists and turns was so inspiring to just be like, I never was, I never was able to sit back and go, I know how this show is going to go. You know, Right. I never yeah. really knew what to expect next. And as a kid and as even looking back as an actor, seeing the Netflix series, you're constantly like, oh shit, where are they going next? What is the joke? What is the performance? It, it yeah. constantly was changing. Um. So thank you for all of that. And uh, I, I really, yeah, it, it's uh, well, Keith, can we have our, our fan question in please? Yes. Um, if you don't mind.
0: Let's see. Keith.
1: Absolutely. You actually had a very good transition there. Speaking of Zim, this question's yeah. from Alex in it. Uh, they're a tremendous fan of you, which oh, I think everybody you. should be. Thank you, Alex. Uh, is, thank you, is there a moment in Zim that surprised you with how zany it was? You talk about improv a lot. Was there a moment like they wrote something down and you were like, I, I have to say this?
0: Um, Nothing surprised me, but there were uh, I did love things like Pastulio. Pastulio, and Ger, why was there bacon in the soap is hysterical to me because <laughs> um, it made me laugh while we were recording because it's also the f- one of the first moments where Ger actually stands up to Zim with, I made it myself, which is not even, it's like a total, it isn't even an answer to why was there bacon in the soap and Ger said, I made it myself. So that's oh why there was God. bacon in the soap. But um, uh, I love that moment. Um, hmm. I loved a lot of the moments in um, in uh, Enter the Florpus, uh, especially because it was, you know, kind of a new look for Zim, too. The whole thing was kind of rounder. The edges were kind of gone uh, in a lot of the characters, particularly in Dib. But um, when it's like, of course not, Kurt. Their stupid eyeballs can't handle all this. I love moments <laughs> like that. That makes me laugh because that's right out of Jonan. That is a Jonin moment. So it's like, that's yeah. like Jonan coming through and I get to say it. So yeah, I, I, I think that's pretty much my answers. I like girl. Why was there bacon in the soap has always been one yeah. of my favorite moments.
1: I remember one of my favorite moments from from that movie was just like right out the gate too the, he goes girl goes I ate a baby and I'm just like okay yeah. now I know where, I know the rider yeah. on for I'll never forget that line it's just so Yeah like... I love
0: that I ate a baby and and Zim says he did, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he did.
1: It's so perfect <laughs> it's Oh, a great gosh. moment
0: great moment love girl Ricky Simons is brilliant as Gurr.
1: Yeah. Oh, come on. Yeah. Phenomenal. Well, Richard, thank you so much. I, I I'm so sorry you, you had to so deal much. with the internet problems. I'm you I'm sorry did. that you had to
0: deal with the internet. I, I you know, this is like the, the, the mislaid plans of mice and men, you know, um, <laughs> that's exactly what today turned out to be. It was like, uh, you know, and everything, anything and everything that can go wrong went wrong today. So uh, except for we and- got hopefully enough out of this that if you, if you do need me to come back, I would be happy to do it when my internet is not just completely kaput.
1: We will have to have you back. That's for certain. But as you said, Murphy's you. Law. Um, is Murphy's there anything Law. quickly you'd, you'd like to to plug? Um, obviously, Hell, Hell of a bosses uh, Season 2, Episode 1 came out. Anything else that yeah. people should be looking yeah, towards?
0: Yeah, uh, you know, um, there's uh, stuff coming out. I'm, uh, World of Warcraft, Hearthstone, I'm in those all the time. So just keep your ears open.
1: Heck yes. Thank you so much, Richard. I Thank really appreciate you. you coming on here. You bet. We did it. Uh, gosh, we we truly went into battle with that of the internet. Gosh. Don't fight the internet. You will never win. <laughs> it is too powerful. Uh, that was so amazing. And he, Richard has been an idol of mine. And... Someone I've looked up to in this industry for as long as I've been doing this. He is a master at his craft, a comedic genius, as I said earlier. And we didn't even get to talk about Grip Adventures of Billy and Mandy. I mean, just all of these unique, hysterical characters, all that have their own kind of little nugget in the comedy sphere. Um and there's just, again, his resume is so dang long, filled with amazing things. Skylanders, um, a great series. It's just. World of Warcraft. He was in EverQuest. I remember. You know, we talk about the Power Rangers. Like, there's just so much he's worked on. He's done so many Ben Ten. It's all gonna come to me as I keep talking. So I'll stop here. But he is truly uh, a pillar in the industry, for uh, especially from the comedic standpoint. I, it's it's hard to hold. What do they say? Hold a glass. Hold a something. Hold whatever it is that people hold to somebody else. You can't hold it to Richard because he's just gonna destroy it. Um, I, I I'm I like when I got to work with him even though again, you don't really work with people, but I got to, to meet him briefly. It was like, you know, one of the only moments I had a real kind of shock to my system because he is just so good and I could listen to him for hours talk about his process and the things that he truly puts into practice, because I think, especially from a comedic standpoint, if you are not invested a billion percent, there's no way to kind of break new ground, because you have to believe you are that character and have fun to the extreme more than anything else. Drama, you can always get away with just kind of saying the dialogue a lot of the times. Comedy, you need great writing, but it's a marriage of great writing and great acting, because even if it's got amazing acting, without the right actor, it just doesn't work. And every time Richard shows up to bat, he swings a freaking home run. Um, you know, it, I, I'm mesmerized by his talent. Um, I'm, I'm blessed that we got to sit here and talk with him today. I hope this all worked out in totality. Um, make sure you check out his, um, uh, gosh, Squirrel Boy. Make sure we check out Squirrel Boy. Check out Hell of a Boss. And uh, make sure you review us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much, everybody. Until next time.